Welcome to Homegrown History with Limestone County Archivist Rebecca Davis and longtime Athens, Alabama native Richard Martin. Each episode, Richard and Rebecca bring to life some of the famous and infamous stories etched in Limestone County's rich history. Hello and welcome back to Homegrown History, the Limestone County History Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis. I'm the archivist at the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. And I am not joined today by my co-host, Richard Martin, who is usually the oldest one here. But uh, Richard had another obligation. However, I'm delighted to say that I am joined once again by a very special guest, Lakin Boyd. He is back with me for another conversation about historic homes of Athens and Limestone County. Lakin, I'm glad to have you here with us again today. Thank you very much. And uh, since Richard is not here, I'm the oldest That's person right. here. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> you are. And I'm glad you are because if any of you have ever met Lakin Boyd, then you know talking to him is such a treat because he's so knowledgeable and he's so generous to share what he knows. Lakin was a professor of art history for 37 years. He taught at University of Alabama at Huntsville, Alabama A&M, Calhoun Community College. He's a very active member of the Limestone County Historical Society, and you have an article in just about every copy of every edition of The Legacy these days, don't you? Something or another having to do with local history. I do. I'm interested generally in uh, older houses, but occasionally I'm asked to write on something else, and uh, I've done both, but I'm currently working on uh, an article on the John Haywood Jones House on Clinton Street. Yes. Some, some people know it as the Hatchet House now. Correct, correct. We talked about that some in our first episode, so if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to part one, and then come back to us. We may overlap a little bit on some of the things we said, but that's okay. And I will give a quick little plug for the Historical Society while we're discussing the legacy and all, because I know you're very active with the Historical Society, Lakin. You have written not only articles for the legacy, but also some of the text of historic markers around town. And if anyone is interested in local history, you can join the Historical Society for, it's $15 a year, isn't that right? That's correct. And it gets you the quarterly publication of Limestone Legacy, which that money actually helps the Historical Society to fund different historic markers and endeavors around town. And you actually had a a personal connection to one of the latest ones that was put up, didn't you, Lakin? I did. Um, I wrote the text for a marker in memory of Samuel Robertson, who was my fourth Mm great-grandfather. And in 1808, he and three of his sons built a series of cabins on the square, the corner of Washington and Marion Streets. And uh, these cabins became not only their home, but uh, a trading house and an inn Mm -hmm. and served both pioneers and Indians alike. Oh, that's fascinating. And they were uh, among the squatters on the land at that time. And uh, General Meggs uh, ran my ancestor off the property Uh and gave it to a Mr. Wilder uh, whom my ancestor Samuel Robertson later killed. So. Oh, wow. Well, and it was known as Wilder's Tavern back then, wasn't it? Uh, at one point it was. Uh-huh. But uh, Samuel tried unsuccessfully for about seven years to get his property back. Wow. But uh, 
apparently General Meigs and uh, Wilder had some connection, mm-hmm. and it ended in a fight in which Samuel Robertson killed Wilder. So did he end up taking over the tavern again, or was it vigilante pioneer? What am I trying to say, justice back then? <laughs> well, he, he never was able to uh, retrieve the property, and eventually he, he moved to Hardin County, Mississippi, where he died in the early 1830s. Oh, okay. Seems like a lot of those early rabble-rousers ended up taking off to Mississippi. I know we had discussed in a previous episode um, one of the first county commissioners. His name was Robert Pollock, and he and his son were indicted for killing a man, and he posted bail and fled the county, and the last anybody heard of him, they were um, set up as pirates on an island in the middle of the (laughs) Mississippi River. So that was one of our founding fathers right there. (laughs) Well, Robertson left many descendants, and as I said... Well, and Robertson is still, of course, Robertson, Robinson, Robinson. Those are still names that you hear all over Limestone County to this day. Absolutely. Well, let's jump right in to talk a little bit about, pick up where we left off, talking about historic homes in Athens and Limestone County. And tell me where you'd like to get started today, Lakin. Well, we were talking about homes in the Houston Historic District. Mm-hmm. And uh, one that wasn't mentioned was the Tanner Sherrill House. And that particular house uh, originally faced Market Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, it now, was, this is over on Madison Street. Is that correct? It's now on Madison Street. But right. originally, it stood where the first Christian church is today. Okay. And it faced uh, Market Street. Okay. And it was built by Samuel Tanner in 1845. Tanner had a mercantile business on the square, numerous other businesses. And now, he, wasn't... Is, he, is this the same Samuel Tanner that was the first mayor of Athens? He served as okay. the first, first mayor of Athens, so that was the house that he built. And later, probably around 1914-15, the house was bought by Lincoln Hightower, oh, okay. who had it moved down to uh, the end of the block and turned mm-hmm. facing Madison Street. So yes. From the corner of Madison and Market, it went down Right. The end of that block. Right. So if you're looking for it, it's a two-story yellow house that's on Madison Street, a little closer to Hobbs Street now, in that block yes. between Market and Hobbs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where it is, and it's kind of what I call a typical Athens house. <laughs> I think many of these houses were designed and built under the direction of Hiram Higgins. Right, and I know we want to talk about that, and I wanted to tell a little bit more about Samuel Tanner before we get beyond that, and his son, John, who ended up living in the house. Um, Samuel was originally from Virginia and the Carolinas, like so many people who came here were, and he came in 1825, and, you know, he had a he had a pretty successful mercantile business as Tanner and Company right up until the financial panic of the 1820s, and he lost everything. He actually had to sell every piece of furniture from his house just to pay his debts. But he, he was like so many of these scrappy early Athens and Limestone County folks who did what it took. I mean, he, he made bricks. He tanned hides. He was a tanner, tan hides. Anything it took to get back on his feet and support his nine children that all lived in that house with him. But John was his sixth child, and uh, John Tanner, and he was really the politician of the family, wasn't he? 
He was indeed. He served five terms as mayor, following in his father's footsteps. He decided he was going to build up a town south of Athens and um, plotted out a whole town down near the railroad stop there named Roland. And that was in 1878 and tried to sell the whole town. But I guess he, like his dad, maybe he was a better politician than a businessman because they didn't sell. Nobody wanted to buy him. And finally, he just sold all his lots to a guy named Boyd. Is that one of your folks? A.M. Boyd? Okay. And finally, in 1913... I guess Boyd, once he was able to kind of build up a town there, they renamed Roland to Tanner. So if you know Tanner, that's where the name came from is John Tanner. But Tanner didn't stop at mayor. He had his sights on something much, much higher. And in 1888, he actually ran for vice president of the United States. He was on the Prohibition Party ticket. Prohibition was his thing. And um, he was under presidential candidate Clinton Fisk, only person from Limestone County to ever be a national vice presidential nominee. And uh, But they lost to Benjamin Harrison, and then Harrison was beat by Grover Cleveland. That was one of those first elections where Cleveland carried the popular vote, but Harrison carried the Electoral College, and so it was this big scandal about how the election was stolen. That was one of the first ones oh my of, of American history that, I mean, this... Uh, argument that we have over the democratic electoral process versus the electoral college is nothing new. (laughs) And one of our own got caught up in it in the 1880s. But one funny thing about Tanner, too, is prohibition was his thing. He just felt like liquor was the devil, and there was plenty of it in Limestone County back then. And Tanner also wrote one of the most valuable histories of Limestone County that we have. John Tanner did. We just call it the History of Athens. We have copies of it available at the archives. But it originally ran as a series of articles in the local newspaper. And of all the histories of Athens and Limestone County that have been written, and his was written in about the 1870s, so he was talking to old-timers who were here from the beginning, his is the most salacious, I would say. He talks about how there was, you know, six taverns and no churches on the square and dog and bear fights and cock fights and horse races and betting jugs of whiskey on the winnings, and I kind of think his bit of an obsession with liquor made him really focus on that, but it made for great storytelling in his <laughs> history of Athens. Well, true, and he, he wasn't the only one supporting that. Right, exactly. That was a big thing back then, wasn't uh, it? Yes, Dr. Joshua Coleman, yes. who lived in the Coleman Hall, which is, again, the Hatchet House today, right. He was uh, very active in that movement. Right, and he was a doctor, so he yeah. was seeing some of the negative results of right. alcoholism that right. was taking place here at the time. I know you had wanted to mention maybe a little bit more about that house, but also about the Higgins connection. Uh, I was thinking, though, when I was growing up, Athens was full of alcohol. Oh, yeah. No, Athens has never been dry. No. Maybe on the books here and there. No, but I, I remember some of the bootleggers. And, oh, yeah. Uh, of course, when we were in high school, we used to go to these bootleggers. And, did you? Yeah. So I never did that. But now when I was a reporter at the News Courier back when I was in my early 20s, I rode along with Sheriff Blakely and them to raid a shot house. I won't say where it was located, but that's back when they had shot houses. It was here in Athens. And the whole thing was basically just an illegal bar. And they busted open a trunk, and it was just full of cases of beer and liquor. And there was a craps table in the back room. And that's where Sheriff Blakely taught me how to play craps, was at the craps table in the back room of the shot house that I rode along for the raid. (laughs) So I remember shot houses. Well, when I was very young, uh, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And so my father got me a job at the hospital. Uh And 
one of the nurses there, her husband was a bootlegger. Really? And, uh, the powers that be would call and let them know when they were going to raid the house. And so <laughs> she would put all the liquor in the bed, get in the bed, and they would put the liquor around her and cover her up with quilts. And when they opened the freezer, yes, there was nothing in it. Right, so right. They, <laughs> and she would just say, I'm sorry, I'm sick. Yes, and, and they had a delivery service, so you could really? call, call and have it put in your mailbox. <laughs> like I said, Athens has never truly been dry. It's just been dry on the books. But this this town was built on moonshine, I'm just saying. Well, we're, we're digressing. I know, here, but I but... like this digression. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the Tanner House. Uh, again, I, I think for many reasons that Hiram Harrison Higgins uh-huh. uh, built. HHH. Yeah, built these houses because there's so many similarities in these various antebellum houses. Mm -hmm. And there were several things that he is noted for. One is the paired columns uh, Mm -hmm. on the portico. And of course, above the portico, the triangular pediment and either a porch or a balcony on the second floor. Right. And something else that he used a lot were three-part windows, uh, Mm -hmm. a modified Palladian window. Mm -hmm. The window has a central part and then two smaller transom-like sections. Right. And you see that on many of his houses. So in addition to the Tanner Sherrill house, what are some other homes or structures that if you're driving around Athens or going for a walk that you could kind of look out for and see some of these details that you're talking about? You can see the same details on the... Goodrich Kirkendall House on Clinton Street. Okay. You can see the same details on the Donnell House. Mm-hmm. And that's the one back there behind what is now Athens Elementary School, at least until they get the new one built. Correct. And then uh, Dr. Wilson's old house that Wayne has just remodeled for one of his daughters. Right. And uh, now that's the one on Jefferson Street right across from the Methodist Church. That, it says that's correct. Craig, Hine, Rosenall, Wilson... I guess it's Harbin now. Harbin, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that is another example. Right. And also another lost example is the old Athens Country Club, the Featherston House, which was built about 1858. Okay. And I actually remember going there. Oh, do you? It was, it was torn down in 1965. Was it torn down to make way for the Country Club? Yeah. Okay. But, well, I think we have a couple pictures of that house in the archives. I think so, and uh, I remember going to parties there and to lunch on Sunday and things mm-hmm. like that, uh, but it was a beautiful example of the same type of house, paired columns, uh, portico with a pediment, and uh, two over two, four main rooms with an L at the back originally. Well, and the Higgins structure that most people would be most familiar with would be Founders Hall. Correct. He's the one who designed and built that one. Now, and from what I understand, it originally had just one dormer over the top, and that was later replaced by the multiple dormers that you see now. Is that correct? I think it is. And you see the same uh, three-part windows, the modified Palladian windows yes. uh, used there. Mm-hmm. And only in two buildings did he use what I would call the full classical order, and that would be Founders Hall, where he uses true ionic columns. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then there are ionic columns used on the Mason House, which was renovated in the 1840s. He added that porch. Oh, Okay. And uh, he's also believed to have added the porch to the 
Vassar Lovern House. Okay, and that's the one on the corner of Washington and Beatty, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll let you kind of work your way down through your list of homes. Were there some other things to note about the Craig Hine Rosenall Wilson house? Well, yes, there, there are many things. I recently published an article in the Legacy on that house. Mm-hmm. And the house started out as uh, a federal house. Mm-hmm. And what you will find uh, is that a number of these houses have been extensively remodeled. Mm-hmm. And so the house originally was built by a man, I believe, named James Craig. It mm-hmm. was a federal house. And then it was remodeled, turned into a Greek revival house. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, uh, later it belonged to the Rosenals, Mm -hmm. and it was moved from the kind of the corner of uh, Jefferson. Jefferson and Bryan? Bryan. It Mm -hmm. was moved from the corner down to the other side of the lot Uh and turned into a colonial revival house. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Do you know why they moved it? Well, my assumption is that uh, he was thinking about selling off the other lots and never did. Oh, okay. Uh, that may be right or wrong, mm-hmm. but uh, the house has been beautifully restored by the Harbins with the help of the father-in-law, Blaine Kirkendall. Right, exactly. Well, and I like I like knowing a little bit about the people who lived in these places, mm-hmm. too. So, you know, Craig... From what I understand, he was the son of John Craig, who was actually the first person to really try to set up camp here in Athens, down at Big Spring, and that lasted all of three days. Mm-hmm. The historic record said that not liking the temperament of the Indians nor their maneuvers, he left. <laughs> I think they weren't too happy to see him, but he, he eventually did come back when it was legal for him to be here and raised a family, and then... When he sold the house to William Anson Hine, Hine and his son Ernest ended up running a store where Bennett's is now. And um, Ernest actually ran three terms as mayor. Mm-hmm. He's the one who Hine Street was named after. And then, of course, um, David Lee Rosenau bought it, and he was judge of Limestone County for, what, a good 40 years. I know there's a, a plaque and two memorial benches to him up on the square, up on the courthouse lawn now where the old bell is. So if somebody wants to learn a little bit more about Rosenall. But lots of prominent people who really had a lot to do with um, the progression of Limestone County history lived in that home, didn't they? They did, and uh, it was the Hine uh, family that turned it into the, quote, Greek Revival House mm-hmm. that remained until about 1914 or 15 when it was, as I said, turned into a colonial revival house mm-hmm. by the Rosenals. Right. Then, well, and the Rosenals also built that little um, craftsman-style bungalow that's right behind that lot. And all of the Rosenals basically had lived there in turn before living in the big house. I guess that was sort of like the family house, living I, in that, that little brick house behind it. When I was growing up, it belonged to Dr. D.J. Wilson, who was right. the town dentist, mm-hmm. and he was the first dentist I was ever taken to. Really? never forget the first visit. Uh, I, I bit him, and uh, he slaps me. And Mother was standing there by me, and she said, slap him again. 
<laughs> I like your mom already. <laughs> Boy, a dentist couldn't get away with that and now, could then they? He would be drilling on your teeth with a cigarette in his mouth. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a different time, wasn't it? Was it was definitely a different time. But <laughs> he was a wonderful man. Yeah, I've heard lots of good things. I'm sure a lot, some of the old timers will remember Dr. Wilson. Where was his office located? Uh, on the corner of Bryant and Madison. But back to the houses, <laughs> yes. I, I might add that the Tanner House, mm-hmm. uh, almost a duplicate of the house that Dr. Wilson lived in, and it was turned into a colonial revival about mm-hmm. 1914 15 by Lake and Hightower. Oh, okay. So was that sort of a trend at the time? It was very much a trend, and, and I think it reflects also how these people were frugal and they would redo these houses, move them without tearing mm-hmm. them down. I find that very interesting. So how did they move houses that size back then? Do you know? Well, I've heard various stories. One is on logs. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Just roll it down the street. Mm-hmm. That had to be a sight to see. Had to be. <laughs> well, what you got next for us? Well, um, I want to mention two structures that have been lost that yes. uh, I wish had been saved and Perhaps the most famous is the octagonal house that stood on Clinton Street. It's known as the Lane Gordon Frost House. Mm -hmm. It was built about 1854, and it was built by General James Lane for his son, and the son was killed in the war, so he never lived in the house. Oh, uh, that's sad. uh, It's one of two octagonal houses that were built in Alabama, the other one being Clayville and Barber County, I believe. Mm-hmm. But, is that one uh, still standing? It is. Oh, okay. But this house uh, was a grander house, and it's really a tragedy that it was lost because it uh, faced west and south. It mm-hmm. faced west on Clinton Street. It had another facade facing south. Okay. So two entrances and two vestibules. So was it at Clinton and Hobbs where the where the Baptist Church is now? Is that right? Uh, it is where the First Baptist Church built a wing onto the church. Okay, so on that like northeast corner of Clinton corner. of Clinton and Hobbs. Okay, I got you. And as I said, it was very unusual because mm-hmm. it had two triangular vestibules, as they said. Did they tear it down to make way for the? The expansion of the Baptist Church? They did. Do you know when that, about when they tore it down? 1953. 1953, okay. Yeah, that was about the time that a lot of older structures were being torn down to make way for quote-unquote modern, mid-century modern, you know, style buildings, the low flat buildings and so on. And uh, another structure that was lost uh, was the old Masonic Hall. Mm Mm-hmm. The building was on East Hobbs Street, right at the railroad. Is it where the Family Life Center is now, or is it across from across the tracks from that? It would be on the north side of the street. Okay, so it is where the Family Life Center is yeah. now. Okay. It was a very unusual building. It was a federal building with Gothic elements. The windows mm-hmm. were Gothic, had the Gothic arch. Right. And it was very beautifully done, and Habs photographed it and even did a detailed plan of the building. Oh, that's great. So you can go back and look that up if you're interested. Um, right, and I will make a note that we'll put up at least a picture of the Octagon House and of the Masonic Hall in our show notes, because we do have photos of those there at the Limestone County Archives, because they were both 
grand, beautiful buildings. They they were, and and I really wish that both had been saved because you can imagine they'd be a great tourist draw today. Right, uh, right. Especially the octagonal house. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I want to mention as we talk about the Masonic Lodge and just Masons in general is we would be remiss if we didn't point out how much the um, the wealthy white homeowners owed to the slaves who built this. Oh, absolutely. You know, there were some master craftsmen in the Masonic, uh, what am I trying to say, trade? Plato Jones being chief among those. He was a very well-known brick mason who helped build Trinity Hall mm-hmm. and other, you know, buildings around here. But many other people whose names we don't know who helped build Founders Hall and the Brady Mason home. And, you know, we talk about Hiram Higgins. His father was the one who had the first brick home in the county built down in what was Cottonport at the time with 400,000 Handmade bricks. Well, yeah. somebody was making those bricks. That's correct. And there are some homes that are, some black-owned homes that are older, that are in the southwest portion of town that were also well-made brick homes. But for the most part, these really big, fine, you know, Greek revival homes and so on that were white-owned and white-built, they owe a lot of what they had, you know, building that generational wealth just to slave labor. And I, I feel like we would be remiss not to mention that, to point that out. Well, unfortunately, uh, the names of former slaves are not mentioned or recorded until the census of 1870. And uh, in some of those census records, uh, an occupation will be given. But I've gone back and looked at the 1860-1850 census records, and occasionally you'll see someone listed as a carpenter. Right. So you do have a way to name some of these individuals who were carpenters, but of course they were all white in the 1850 and 1860s. Correct. Right. And one thing to note too, particularly African Americans are doing their genealogy, it is really hard to get back and find those. However, one of the things that we've started to do at the Limestone County Archives, April Davis, the assistant archivist, and I are making a, a concentrated effort to do is as we come across slaves who were named in deeds, wills, circuit court minutes, Mm -hmm. you know, probate minutes where people are willing their slaves to other people and so on, that we make a note of those because, you know, you don't really know what name they would have gone by because it would have always gone by their owners. But if we say, like, Mary, slave of Nicholas Davis, you know, if you look up slave in our master index, it'll bring up all of the hits because although they were treated as property in the records before, of course, before emancipation, they still were named. But we don't have slave schedules, slaves, bills of sale, and that type thing at the Limestone County Archives. Those were not handled there, you know, locally. But that is something that we have tried to make an effort to do. Let's let's bring those names back out and, you know, acknowledge that they were here and that they were contributing to this society, you know, at the time, even if they were not counted as fully human, unfortunately, back then. Well, when I was teaching at A&M, often I would uh, have a student, I'd look at the last name and the name would be Ritas or Malone yes. or Bridgeforth, and, and I would almost immediately know they were from Limestone County. Right. 
um, slaves were just basically kind of required to take on the names of owners. But that's why we have so many Malones and races in Bridgeforce here is because there were slave owners that owned huge swaths of land and huge numbers of slaves. Absolutely. And all of their slaves then took on their last name. And so Malone was a big one. And there's a lot of Malones here. But then, of course, you've got people who didn't want to take that name. And so they would go by Freeman or Lincoln or something like that. Well, back to the house. Yes, I know uh, we digress again. <laughs> but it is all part of it. Uh, another very interesting house was the Macklin Hobbs Horton House, yes, which uh, occupied a city block where the Methodist Church and City Hall mm-hmm. uh, stand today. And uh, that house was built in 1849, and uh, eventually uh, the house was owned by Judge James Edwin Horton, mm-hmm. and he had the house taken apart and moved to a tract of land down at Greenbrier. Which was out in the middle of nowhere, wasn't it? And now this house was also used as an infirmary hospital during uh, the Civil War, wasn't it? It was. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the the house was a very large house. Uh, It had two facades. And when it was moved, they didn't put it back exactly as it was, but it was a very large house containing two hallways. Mm -hmm. And it was like eight over eight rooms. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah, with a... Uh, an extension or an L, so mm-hmm. it was larger than, than most houses at mm-hmm. that time. Uh, also, it had Doric columns paired with the square columns, which mm-hmm. is a little bit different, and double porches. And uh, the house, as I said, was moved down to what had once been Druid's Grove. That land had belonged to John Haywood Jones. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually the Hortons bought the land, and uh, I was talking to Kathy Horton recently, mm-hmm. and the house is going to be moved again. Uh, mm-hmm. This time, they're, they're moving it to Mooresville, so mm-hmm. I'm glad to see that happening. Yes, because tell us why they're having to move it again. Well, uh, because <laughs> of the Toyota plant that's right. being built across the, right. the way. It yeah. used to be out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nothing but cow fields and cotton fields, didn't it? Because they raised Black Angus cattle down there. They did, and... I used to go down there. The sister of Kathy was a close mm-hmm. friend of mine. And oh, yeah. We were all great friends, and so yeah. I'm very familiar with that. House. That's right, and it's across the street from where the Toyota Mazda plant is now and right down the street from Greenbrier Barbecue. So if you ever went down there to get you some barbecue and catfish and hush puppies, then <laughs> you've seen it. Yeah. Well, Kathy and Johnny decided to move into the Cedars. Right. And, uh, Glad to hear that the house will be saved. Right. And, you know, that's another home where the family members were all very active in the development of Limestone County history. I mean, you've got the Macklins and then the Hobbs, Hobbs. which Hobbs Street is named after, Thomas Macklin Mm -hmm. Hobbs. And then, of course, James Edwin Horton Jr. married the Hobbs daughter. And that's where he walked from to go to the courthouse to issue his monumental ruling in the Scottsboro Boys case. But the house was built by Dr. Benjamin Macklin, Mm -hmm. and he married uh, Anna Hobbs. Right. That's the connection there. Exactly. So, But those were real prominent families at the time. What you got next for us? Well, I was just thinking, uh, as I've said, there's similarities to these houses, and I keep going back to Hiram Higgins, but a number of these houses have almost identical mantles, identical stairways, identical moldings, mm-hmm. and perhaps the most prominent features would be the 
porticos, the right. paired columns, mm-hmm. and uh, then the three-part windows. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my latest research has led me to believe that Hiram Higgins was the architect involved in the construction of the John Haywood Jones House, mm-hmm. which is a monumental brick Italianate house right. there on Clinton Street. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we had talked last time we were together also a little bit about uh, Flower Hill Farm. It's a very similar style too. That's the one that's was the prior home down there on Highway 31 for you know our listeners. That's uh, when you're going around that curve heading down to Decatur. It's the big house over there on the right that's about covered up with bushes now mm. in it but now it's a similar style too is that also absolutely a Higgins uh, home? possibly uh and you might also say the cedars that the garrett's mm-hmm. live in now where exactly is that located it's on garrett road oh okay uh, both Down of those in both of those houses were very late being built in 1858 59 and uh I was talking again to Kathy Garrett, and she thought that the Garrett House was the last mansion built before the Civil War, but this research that I've recently done proves that the Hatchet House was not started until 1860, and it was not finished when the war broke out. Mm -hmm. And now it was also used as an infirmary, wasn't it? It was, and the latter part of the war. Mm-hmm. Well, because by that time, Athens being under occupation from 1862 to 1864, of course, 1862, whenever there was the battle and the takeover, and skirmishes, and you had the Battle of Athens there in 1864, but there were several homes that ended up being used in that capacity, or, or as barracks, too. Well, in the trial of Churchin, one of the officers mentions or testifies that he was ordered to occupy the house and that the house was not finished at the time of occupation. So that proves to me that in 1862, the house was not quite finished. Right. It is fascinating, isn't it, to be able to find these little details about these homes and what happened there as you go through your research, isn't it? It is indeed. I feel like as much as, you know, we tell stories, I mean, that's what history is all about, telling the stories about why things are the way they were and to bring us here today, but uh, every house has a story too, doesn't it? It, it does, and, and I find these stories fascinating, and the families that nurtured these houses through Reconstruction and mm-hmm. the Great Depression, and it's amazing that as many of them have survived that have. It really is, you know, to, when you look at Athens, I mean, one of the biggest draws that we have that just sort of brings people in from outside is the history, our historic charm, and the fact that we do still have so many structures that remain. And when you think about what these homes have stood guard over, you know, oh, if these walls could talk, right? That's correct. (laughs) So just to kind of wrap it up, uh, I'm interested to know just sort of what tips you have, what resources or sources people can turn to if they're wanting to find out a little bit more about their own home or another historic home that maybe they're interested in. What are some ways to get started with that search? Well, the way I usually get started, I try to look at the deeds. I try to find out who owned the property from the beginning. The land sales were held in 1818, I believe. Mm -hmm, That's correct. So I find the first owner of the land, and then I trace it from there. And uh, you can determine that way when a house was built on the property. So uh, deeds are a great source of information on, on the houses. 
And then genealogy is another way that I can trace these families because you have a very good uh, family file yes. in mm-hmm. the archive. Right, we but, sure do. And then newspapers uh, mm-hmm. from the archive. Most recently, I found a wonderful advertisement dated June, I believe, 1859, where Hiram Higgins advertises himself as an architect. Oh, who, that's cool. Who is capable of building in the Italianate style. Oh, and, and that, nice. that advertisement is going in my next article. That's cool. Was it in a local Athens paper or somewhere in Limestone County paper. Limestone County paper. That is very cool. And we do at the Limestone County Archives have newspapers on uh, microfilm going back to the 1860s or so. Well, that's where I found it. April helped me, and uh, I found the ad in an 1859 newspaper. Wow. I think that's a great place to wrap it all up, don't you? If you want to know more, come to the Limestone County Archives. Uh, It's been a goldmine for me. (laughs) Or you can also go to limestonearchives.com. We have our master index there. You can search people by name. You can look at a lot of those records there. The the deeds are online. I can sit at my computer. Yes. Yes, you don't even have to put shoes on. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And, and we also now have the Limestone County Digital Archives, in which we have lots and lots of photos and other information. And so if you're looking for something, you know, it might be there, or you can just ask us, and we can sometimes we can just put, them up, put things up there on demand. So that's a great resource, too. Well, it's a treasure for Limestone County. Well, thank you. Well, I think you're a treasure for Limestone County Lakin. I I appreciate appreciate you bringing light to all of this. Thank you so much. And with that, I reckon we'll wrap it up, and y'all come join us next time for another episode of Homegrown History. You've been listening to Homegrown History, presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library and the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. For more information, visit the archive website at limestonearchives.com. And to hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, check out our website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.